my kids were bribing me to go in and when the vet says, so what seems to be wrong with Bailey? To go, one-year-old Bailey is suffering. Because <laughs> they're obsessed with my voiceover voice. And I was so tempted and I thought, no, I can't do it because they'll just look at me. They won't, they probably don't watch the show because would you, if you worked in a vet, you're not going to go home and watch Super Vet, are you? This week on Walking the Dog, I went for a stroll with writer, actor and all-round comic genius, Rebecca Front. I first came across Rebecca in the day-to-day and Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge and I just remember being blown away by how brilliant and funny she was. She's since, of course, gone on to become one of the most celebrated names in comedy, being brilliant in everything from the thick of it to Grandma's house. Rebecca has a cockapoo named Bailey, who is so handsome, by the way, and we met up on Hampstead Heath for a chat. And I should say a big thank you to Mark Gatiss, because it was on my dog walk with Mark last summer for this podcast that we ran into Rebecca and Bailey, and he managed to convince her to come on. I feel I should pay him a commission or something, but look, he's doing all right. The man never stops working. Maybe I'll lend him some poo bags next time I see him. I am so glad Rebecca did come on because she's such a lovely woman. She's funny, as you'd expect, but she's also very calming and sweet-natured and a lovely person to spend time with. We talked about her childhood and how she overcame a few challenging experiences. We also chatted about how she deals with anxiety and meeting her husband and soulmate, Phil, as well as how her comedy career all began. I have to say, my dog Ray was utterly obsessed by Rebecca. He just gravitated towards her. I was a little bit jealous, I'm not going to lie. But you know what? If Ray wants to be your friend, I'm sold. You can catch Rebecca being brilliant in Armando Iannucci's Avenue 5, which is currently on Amazon Prime. It's a very funny series about space travel starring Hugh Laurie, so do check it out. As you probably worked out, I loved my walk with Rebecca, and I hope you do too. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. I'll shut up now and leave you with the podcast. Here's Rebecca and Bailey. And Ray. Right. Now, look, who's leading the way? Because I've got no sense of direction. I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> OK. <laughs> OK, dogs, it's up to you. So what, oh, is, no. what is Ray, apart from a dog? I mean, that's the eternal and very question. adorable. I would describe him as a small, very small shih tzu. Right. What is Bailey? Bailey's a cockapoo, the classic North London dog. Um, I mean, that is such a... We've got friends who live in the wilds of Somerset who are, like, you know, proper... They've owned dogs for a while, and it was, in fact, their, their first dog who persuaded us to get a dog in the first place. And I just remember them... Just after we said, oh, we know, we've... There's a, we found a dog who's having a litter and we've put in an offer and before we even said it, they both went cockapoo. <laughs> <laughs> like, such a cliche, of course it's going to be a cockapoo. I'm really thrilled and excited because I'm a huge fan of this woman's and I bumped into her when I was walking the dog with Mark Gatiss. <laughs> it's Rebecca Front, the immensely talented, fabulous Rebecca Front, who's on walking the dog with her dog, Bailey. So, Bailey is... Beautiful, Rebecca. Well, thank you. I mean, what can I say? You know, he takes after me, clearly. <laughs> He's got my genes. <laughs> He's no, a... He is a bit of a stunner. He's a Bobby Dazzler. Oh, I would describe his colouring as Caramac. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a proper name. In fact, I think it's, I think they say apricot or something. I don't oh, quite see apricot. Lovely. Maybe dried mango. 
<laughs> but maybe one of the more expensive dried mangoes you get in Planet Organic. <laughs> Something like really, really overpriced. Oh, sorry, my dog's just vomiting mud. Daily, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that swim was not a good idea. You're supposed to be looking heroic. All <laughs> standing vomiting on a corner. <laughs> Come on, Belle. We've all had a good night. It's time to go home. <laughs> Look, Bailey, we've all had a drink, mate. <laughs> now, that's not for you, sweetie. I'm now being... Another dog is now after my oh, treat. Oh, this is a cute dog. Hello. You're lovely, but I can't feed you. So tell me about your history with dogs, Rebecca. Did you grow up with pets? No, very much not at all. My parents really were not big fans of dogs at all. Um, I say were in the past tense for reasons that will become apparent, but yeah. they really weren't into dogs. I think my mum was maybe a little bit nervous of them. I think I've got a feeling she may have been bitten by one when she was quite young. So no, we absolutely did not have a dog at home. And I became a bit scared because I think I always associate anything that's unfamiliar as being possibly slightly scary. Um, so I always assumed I was scared of dogs. And then um, we used to go for holidays in Yorkshire with my mum's old college friend and her family. And they had a lovely Springer Spaniel called Fergus. And that's the first time I sort of fell in love with the dog because Fergus just, just seemed to really like me. And I was, I kind of, it really threw me that yeah. there could be this creature that I didn't understand anything about, but mysteriously he seemed to kind of get me. Um, but then I met Phil, my now husband, who desperately wanted a dog and always had wanted one. Bailey! Apologies for my operatic Bailey. delivery. It's the only thing he answers. Come away, come away, good boy. Yeah. When I met Phil, he was desperate to have a dog and I just kept saying it's too much of a draw and it's too, it's too, much, of a, it's too much pressure, you know, because I travel for work and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, so to cut a very long story short, years went by, the, we had two kids, the kids desperately wanted a dog, but we all agreed, no, it wasn't fair to have a dog when we've got quite a small garden and, you know, we were working all the time. Um, and then finally, we decided years and years and years later, after falling in love with this lurcher, Monty, down in Somerset, that yes, we would indeed get a dog. Yeah. But the, the timing could not have been more ironic, because when we finally got Bailey, after my kids had wanted this their entire childhood. He arrived two days before my son went travelling for four months. So was, my son Ollie was so cross. It's just like, really? Really? Did you plan this just to, make, just to drive me insane? It's like some sick so joke. Was, I know, it was awful. It really did look like he was the Ollie replacement. Bailey, come away now. Oh, we're witnessing a... Okay, this is true love. Belle! This is... Oh, we've we talked this, about uh, this. Consent. Specialist. <laughs> okay, unfortunately, he, she has now consented, so that's not good. <laughs> Belle, come away. Come away, come on. He's got a very um, happy heart. He's, he's got an incredibly sweet personality, a yeah. really lovely nature. We like to... Because he's so sweet and so lovable, we always like to kind of ascribe the worst possible... Um, political views do <laughs> so whenever we hear something really reprehensible being talked about on the news or something we'll just go Bailey voted for that because yeah. <laughs> he's just so obviously <laughs> such a sweetie Bailey you're you're basically an antidepressant Bailey he do you know he's been an absolute godsend during lockdown and everything so he jumps on my bed in the morning my husband goes down and makes a coffee 
because I've got, a, got him very well trained, much yeah. better trained than the dog. So he goes <laughs> on and makes coffee and lets Bailey upstairs. And Bailey leaps on my bed and I just wake up happy because of him. Oh, it's a really look. wonderful thing. Ray's running. Come on, Ray, show me back how you run. Oh, Come look on, at yay. you go. That's great. So I want to know about your childhood, really, because I'm fascinated by your childhood. Um, very, extremely happy, I'm glad to say. Um, I grew up in East London, um, in just near Ilford in Essex, as it, well, it was Essex, I don't know if it still counts as Essex. Um, and, yeah, it was just, you know, my parents, thank goodness, are both still alive. And it was, they were just wonderful, just loving, very, very supportive to me and my brother. I've got, my brother Jeremy is four years older than me. Um, and my parents, yeah, they're just amazing. They're just so supportive. Every live show I've ever done, they've come to and everything that's on the radio they'll kind of they'll either listen to it when it's going out or they used to make recordings and label them I mean it's a real they're like the archivists of the family they're properly proud of both of us it's really sweet and it was quite a creative family wasn't it yeah in some ways because your dad well there's something very special in terms of um your dad's legacy artistically <laughs> yes my dad's output yeah my dad um he trained as an artist. He went to the Slade, um, which for for a boy from you know kind of working class East London was that was quite a big deal to to get into the Slade. He was really talented um, draftsman and still is at the age of ninety when he draws. He's he's just so adept. You know he's got the most incredible hand. Um, so he went to the Slade and he started fine art and then got into advertising in the sixties, which was you know very much Mad Men. The London oh, wow. version of Mad Men time. So he was there in his natty Jaeger suits in Mayfair, you know. Sort so of, quite glamorous, that. Yeah, he's sort of very, and, and good looking and, you know, quite a bit of swagger about him. So he did all of that, but actually hated it. He really wanted to be, um, he just wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be, he didn't mind what he was doing, but he really didn't want to be kind of selling bacon and stuff, which is what he was doing. Yeah. So eventually he gave that up and went freelance so just, uh, and just thought, I'll just take my chances. I'll take whatever work I can get. And my mum, bless her, who had by that time two small children, supported him through it, which is an amazing thing to do. And one of the first jobs that he got was that uh, Robert Freeman, who, used to do, who did most of the Beatles albums, um, got in touch with him and asked him to do the, the lettering for Rubber Soul, for the Rubber Soul album cover. So that that amazing rubbery lettering which is based on a drop of latex he went he, he went and met the Beatles went to Abbey Road I think met the Beatles discussed it with them and then um, yeah he just came up with this idea of the the rubber sole lettering being this sort of drop of rubber molten rubber um, and and yeah and came up with this extraordinary lettering which has become pretty iconic and was sort of one of the precursors of, of bubble writing and pop art lettering and all that sort of stuff. So it was kind of an amazing thing for him to have done. Were you aware of that being an amazing thing at the time? I mean, were you so young? Well, I was tiny. I mean, I think I was really literally six then. months old yeah. or something, yeah. But, but as you got older, presumably people talked about it and said, you know, your dad did this. And, yeah, you know. I mean, actually not so much until we were much more grown up and then it started to be a thing. I don't know quite whether it was... Whether he, he's very shy, my dad, very modest, and I wonder if maybe he just didn't tell people. So I suspect throughout childhood, lots of people didn't know about it. And then as I got older, 
my brother and I would tell our friends, you know, go, when we were at university and stuff, we'd kind of say, do you know what, my dad did this. And <laughs> gradually you do start to realise that everybody's going, God, that's really cool. I mean, um, it's, it's the coolest thing I've ever heard a parent <laughs> doing. Frankly. I'll tell him, he'll be very proud. Oh. But it is quite cool. And then he did a couple of other album cover things. And, but mainly he was a book illustrator. He still uh, carried on doing calligraphy, which is, you know, I think he would, he would say Rubber Soul was much more a calligraphy job because yeah. it was just the font. Um, but, he, but most of the time he did book illustration and that's where the collaborations with my mum came in because my mum was a teacher but had always written stories for the kids at school and, they, and eventually they got a few things published. They ended up getting about five or six books published and, and she wrote the stories and Dad did the illustrations. So it was really nice growing up that they were, they were like a little cottage industry. And do you know what I get the sense is that... It was a creative family, but you had sort of there was sort of love and rules and boundaries and all that stuff as well. There were absolutely the only I think the only tax to it was the that it was the income was precarious, and as you know this is freelancers' entire life. We now realise it's yeah. all about you know you're either so busy that you're having to turn work down and therefore turn money down, or you're just not getting anything at all. Yeah. So there was never a sense of kind of financial security. That was the only downside and I think as kids they they protected us from it really well but I was aware of it I was aware that there would be sort of you know quiet discussions around can we have a holiday this year and <laughs> that sort of yeah. stuff or can we like we need to get a new car because this one's conking out and we just can't we just can't do it so you know it wasn't god it wasn't poverty people have so much worse yeah, yeah. it really wasn't we were very comfortable but it was there was no sense of real sort of security financial security so I love the sound of your childhood and I get the impression you were close to your brother, Jeremy. Yeah, very close. And we still are, actually. In fact, he ended up marrying uh, one of my college friends. So, um, so we have stayed really, really close and he lives very close to me. And yeah, it's lovely. And his daughter is between the ages of my two kids. So yeah. there's a really nice kind of, it's like they're all, almost like they're all siblings. I, you see, I often think if siblings have a good relationship, you know, whatever kind of childhood you have. get down. <laughs> You're making Emily oh, no. covered in mud. Is my mic okay? He's just pulled my... Oh, Bailey's just Bailey, pulled my mic out. what have we told you? You come from a household <laughs> full of people trying to do voiceovers and produce things, <laughs> and this is how I've trained you. You see what I mean, though? He's a saboteur. He looks all innocent, <laughs> but there's definitely that bit of him that's just thinking, yeah, I call this a living call this a job it's not a job is this how you earn your living i think he's looking at ray who's being carried as if to say how come he gets special privileges <laughs> don't even think about it bale that's not Bailey. happening you're very heavy oh you lovely good boy bale i was gonna say i always think that's a sign that the parents did a good job on an emotional level if the, if the siblings, siblings are on. close in adulthood i suppose that's probably true actually um yeah so Jer jeremy and i really got close um around sixth form time actually for two reasons firstly because we got in, really got into comedy and started coming up with ideas together and secondly I think because I went from being kind of really annoying and and sort of deeply unattractive <laughs> <laughs> to being only mildly annoying and mildly unattractive and so suddenly I She's was so welcome in his <laughs> such a show off and in fact we ended up we were briefly in a band together me and Jeremy and so we did by the time we were 17 or 18 <laughs> we were really close I know but it wasn't always that you know we did bicker a lot I get this impression of you as a quite a studious academic kid 
yes, uh, I was, I read a lot. Um, I did work very hard and I was quite, uh, I was very ambitious. I mean, I've always been ambitious. And I think at that stage, my ambition was all about wanting to be, you know, best at stuff and wanting to be top of the class and all that sort of stuff. So I, I was, I worked really hard. I was quite good at exams, which is one of those things that, as we've seen, you know, more and more with, as each year passes, doing exams is a skill and you get really brilliant people yeah. who are rubbish at exams and really not brilliant people who are very good at them. And I happen to be quite good at them. And I don't think I was exceptional at all. I just worked hard and I knew how to revise. Um, so yeah, I was, I, I was always very studious. Were you, were you in the sort of popular gang as it were? Uh, oh gosh, that's really interesting. I don't, I don't actually particularly remember there being one. I was in a big, a, a group of friends. I always had friends around me and I was never bullied and I always felt very comfortable. It was really weird because actually I'd always been, I'd always been very happy and stable and I'd always loved school. And then um, it was the summer before I transitioned from primary school to secondary school. And we, the area I grew up, we still had the 11 plus and I'd, so I'd done the 11 plus and I passed and got a place at this secondary school that everybody wanted their girls to go to. It was this posh girls grammar state school, but like, you know, run like a little bubbly school. And um, we went away for a brief holiday, literally like a week's holiday, um, staying with, staying at a family house my cousin had up in Leeds um, so and we only went for a week because my grandfather had been unwell and he'd had some heart problems and but he'd come out of hospital and the doctors had assured my mum that it was all going to be fine um, and then it, and she kept saying you sure I can go away and they were like no definitely he's absolutely fine he's coming in for a checkup next week but he's going to be fine so we went away and um, about two days into the holiday we went to the river wharf uh, and we had a little paddling trip picnic my dad is you know we're none of us particularly good swimmers my, apart from my brother who's quite good but we went for this thing and so literally my brother and my dad were wading up to below their knees in water because it was a very hot day my mum and I were laying out the picnic and suddenly we could see my brother waving and waving and waving classic like you know not waving but drowning thing and we were waving back like idiots and in fact he was saying that dad had was drowning and what had happened we think was that there were they were right by the bank because my dad's not a good swimmer. So they were wading a little bit into the river, but right by the bank. And we think that the roots of a tree had created a whirlpool and he lost his balance and he got sucked into this whirlpool and he could not get his balance, couldn't get back at all. And he thought, dad tells it, dad's got a really interesting take on it because he remembers it very, very clearly. He was absolutely convinced he was dying, but he kind of thought, you know what, if I'm going to go, this is not a bad way to go. So and he had a very peaceful, Really? experience but you're it. it's not peaceful for you though no, you're terrifying it. for us and once my mother and I realized I then have this very clear memory of us running round this riverbank I was barefoot I think I was in a bikini or something I was running and I remember looking down and seeing blood all over my foot and thinking I didn't even know I cut myself because I was obviously in shock and then we just ran and ran and ran and at some point I, I remember seeing people go in and I also remember some people saying, no, we can't get him. And someone saying, there's nothing we can do. I mean, all the, we could hear all this going on and we were just running to try and get to him. And then I remember these three guys, I've got this very clear memory, these three Yorkshire blokes, like rugby players, yanking off their shirts and shouting. One of them went, bugger this. And they all yanked off their shirts and they waded in. And my dad's quite small. So these three guys just got him, you know, one under each arm, and I think, you know, I don't know, one got his legs or something, and they just pulled him out. 
they got him to the side and rolled him onto his side and by some miracle one of the other people having a picnic that day was a nurse so she suddenly appeared by this time my mum and I were there I thought he was dead because as we arrived he was just lying listless and and she suddenly appeared and whacked him hard on the back and all the water came out and she probably and I, saved his life and she she definitely saved his life yeah he was I mean, he was the reason he was so peaceful is because he was he was dying there's no question I think there's a thing, isn't there, about if you go down three times or something, you're dead. And there's some, I don't know if that's scientifically accurate, but once the water starts to get into your lungs, you yeah. haven't got a lot of ch chance, really. That's amazing, so, that story. So it was, it was, thank God, I mean, it was incredible. And he recovered very, very fast, my dad, as soon as he was back properly conscious. He was just kind of like, should we come back tomorrow? You know, I mean, he was absolutely fine. But for the rest of us, of course, we were absolutely traumatised. And we went back to the holiday house and, and we were all in shock. My poor brother who tried to save his life and couldn't, just didn't speak for about 24 hours. It's horrendous. Mm. Anyway, so the next day, um, we, my mum and I went to the local shop to get some milk and we came back ready to make breakfast and my dad opened the door to my mum's. It was like 9.30 in the morning with a glass of brandy. And this is, my mum is not a drinker, so we knew something ter terrible had happened. Mum said, what, what, what is it? You know, what's going on? And, and her dad had died. So these two things happened within, two, within a day, two days of each other. Um, and we just, we packed the car up and we drove home. And so it was horrendous. And then about a week after that, I started the new school and I just couldn't cope with it. I just fell apart and I was terrified that my mum was going to be next. I thought, well, Bamper's gone, my grandfather. Dad nearly went and we managed to just snatch in, in him from the jaws of death. Period, you know. So clearly they're going, death's going after mum now. You know, that's, that's the, the pattern of this. That's how this is going. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think I was quite, I was an anxious kid anyway. I've been claustrophobic since I was about seven, so it's not like I was without any anxiety. It was kind of an overreaction to what had happened with, with my dad and my grandfather, but it wasn't that surprising given that I already had this propensity to catastrophize and, you know, be scared of things. And um, I mean, I, I think it, in my head, it was a very, very clear narrative, which was this figure of death, you know, coming and stalking the family. But actually it was now I look back on it I was just I was an anxious kid and something unnerved me something horrible happened and it really unnerved me and I got terrified I was just terrified of being away from my family and being away from home see I don't think that's an overreaction I think that's a really normal reaction because I think it's one thing having to deal you know of course people have to deal with loss at, at all ages but I think something about watching a parent in that situation of feeling utterly helpless, and in yeah. your brother's case, feeling potentially sort of culpable in some way, even though of course he wasn't. No, feeling... of course not. But I think in his head, yeah, he just felt like he'd he'd failed to pull him out of this horrible situation. Of course he had. You know, he's my brother's fourteen. You know, of course he couldn't pull a grown man away from a whirlpool. There was no, and he, it was incredibly brave that he tried. But I don't think he at the time. I think now he does recognise that. Oh, look, look at all those dogs. Bailey's not great with alpha dogs, so he's yeah. actually, I think the, these Do two are really it's good all right, together. Ray. Look what Ray does, he's so anxious, Rebecca. Oh, sweetie, I really do empathise, though. That do is you? kind of what I'm like, yeah. How does your anxiety manifest itself? I mean, the obvious thing is the, the stuff I can't do, which is going on, basically going on tube trains and going in lifts. Mm. Um, but there is more than that. I mean, I, I have suffered with a lot of health anxiety, which I have to, which I've really worked on in recent years, and I'm quite proud of 
you know how what a distance I've come because that that's been very difficult for a long time and I've managed to really kind of get on top of it a lot more through CBT counselling. I feel like I've sort of, I've got a lot of tools to deal with that. Mm. Um, but it's still there. It's all kind of always going to be there. Um, I don't know. I suppose I, I think it is that catastrophizing thing that I, as soon as a new idea presents itself, like a new possibility, like a holiday or a job abroad or something like that, I immediately go to what could possibly go wrong and how badly it could go wrong and can convince myself completely within five minutes that I shouldn't do this thing. So I then have to work incredibly hard to convince myself that actually maybe I should, you know, <laughs> because once, you, once you're totally sure that the worst thing is going to happen, it's really hard then to think, but I'm going to do it anyway. Given what you do for a living, yeah. the high-stress job you do well, as an actor... Shortly after I met Phil, who is... Phil's one of the least anxious people I've ever met That's in my That's your life. other half. My husband, yeah. He's a writer. He was, for a long time, he was an exec producer. I met him when he was working in radio as a producer. Then he became a TV executive producer, and now he's writing. Um, he said a really smart thing. He's very well-read, Phil, and he, he just threw this quote at me, which initially I didn't... I kind of thought, why are you saying that? Why you? Which was that I was trying to explain um, being claustrophobic and being terrified of, you know, going in a lift, say. And he said, oh, OK, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse, which is a quote from mm. Hilaire Belloc, one of the cautionary tales. And the point is, we are going up a hill, by the way, in case people are wondering. It's not like I'm having an aspirin attack. I'm going to carry Ray through the mud. Hang on. Hampstead, very hilly. <laughs> um, but the point is about that quote that actually that kind of is what my anxiety is, that I keep a hold of nurse, which is my anxiety, which is horrible, but it's very manageable. Yeah. Because if I don't, I'm going to start being anxious of other things, oh, which yeah. I really can't afford to do. And it's a real, I remember once talking to a CBT therapist and, and saying, you know, my husband used this quote and she kind of wrote it down and went, God, that's brilliant. That's, really, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I don't think it is for everybody, but for me, I think the anxiety is a way of channeling the stuff that, I would, that would otherwise hinder my career. Yes. So, for instance, the example I always use is that I remember years ago doing Have I Got News For You when it was, they used to record it. Uh, That's most people, especially women. Yeah, most people's idea of hell. Um, And I'm not a comedian, you know, I've I've done comedy, but I'm not a comedian. So I was very nervous about doing it. Um, But what I was really nervous about was that where they used to record it, they would have drinks afterwards on the 21st floor in the bar. So to me, I could do the recording, that was fine. What I couldn't do is go up in the lift. And once I realised that I could actually walk up, I, I literally got in touch with the producer and said, you know, is there a staircase I can use? Once she said yes, I thought, OK, I'm fine then. I'll so, be all right, I can do the rest of it. Phil, who, FYI, I'm already obsessed with. I love the sound of Phil. <laughs> He's wonderful. Um, presumably Phil's take on that would be, OK, so that was handy for you to be able to focus on the 21st floor and the yeah. lift. And that meant you were able to perform confidently and well on Have I Got News? I think that's right. Now, there's a downside to that, which is that that then disincentivizes you, if that's a word, from actually curing the phobia. Because you, once you've got that in your head, and I genuinely do think that's, that's, my kind of, that's the way my mind works, I then start to think, well, hang on a minute, if I start using lifts um, without any anxiety, does that mean I'm not going to be able to go on stage? 
I don't think there's any logic to that at all. Yeah. But but mental health is not logical. So there's that's the the issue I think. And I really I think as I've got older, I've decided there are certain things that I will hold on to, and um, which in my case is tube trains and lifts, and all the stuff that's really hindering me. Like for a while, I didn't want to get on a plane. Certainly didn't want to fly long haul. Well, I can't do my job if I don't go on planes and I don't do long haul. Well, so that's, you that's fine now. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no. You went to Oxford. Mm. Was that expected of you, Rebecca? No, it really wasn't. Because I, I went to, um, when I left the school that I was phobic about going to, um, I went to a, a different grammar school, which then became a, a an early form of com uh, comprehensive and didn't have any real history of people going to Oxbridge. I mean, a few people, once every couple of years, somebody would go to Oxbridge, but so it really wasn't, it was kind of a bit weird when I said I wanted to apply, but I had very, very supportive teachers who gave up their free time to help coach me. And Oh, that looks like fun, well, kicking through the leaves. Do you want to describe leaves. what's going on? It's, it's a dog and voice. a girl just kicking through a big pile of leaves, and I've never seen two creatures happier. I mean, that is the definition <laughs> of joy, isn't That's it? That's just wonderful. But yes, yeah, so going to Oxford. Um, I, I realised when I got there, there are, there are some people who are just brilliant and are, natu you know, are just really gifted academically. One of my closest friends at the time. Um, is is just brilliant she's just got an incredible mind i was absolutely not that person but i was good at exams so i worked hard and, and then when i got to oxford after the initial imposter syndrome which lasted about a year Did you have I, imposter syndrome oh, there? genuinely thought that um they got the wrong person didn't help that there was there was a girl in the year above me called rebecca fong <laughs> so our pigeonholes for, for letters and things were next to each other and in my first, about my first week, I was at a women's college, St Hughes, and my first week I got invited to tea with three boys from Oriel or something. I thought, what the heck? Just said, you know, dear Rebecca, we'd love it if you came to tea. And I thought, wow. And I was really excited. And then I kind of read it a bit more closely and there was some reference to a seminar or something that went, and I thought, oh, it's for Rebecca Fong. And then I started to get obsessed with the fact that Rebecca Fong, in fact, was the one they'd meant to give the place to. No logic to that, of course, because <laughs> she was already there. But I just was obsessed with it was meant to be her. It wasn't meant to be me. I would have wanted to bag myself a Sebastian flight. Oh, that's totally what I was after. I wanted a floppy-haired public schoolboy. That's completely what I wanted. Funnily enough, Phil is a floppy-haired public schoolboy, but He's from a working-class council estate in Streatham, so that's kind of the best of all worlds, isn't it? I hate you for the perfect man. He's great, isn't he? <laughs> Doesn't play jazz piano, that was my other requisite. So, did you find any Brideshead characters? No, there was, there was uh, a guy in, who was part of, who I'd met at some Ouds function. I remember thinking, oh, that's him. He's very good-looking, <laughs> floppy head. Didn't know I existed. I mean, really not interested at all. So I obsessed about him for a little while. Um, <laughs> And then, no, I had a couple of boyfriends. They were all interesting, they were all state school um, people from backgrounds very much like mine. So yeah. for all my <laughs> kind of wannabe snootiness, like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going up in the world. I actually, I clearly wasn't really that interested because I was actually much more drawn to people, to slightly swatty, you know, state school people like me who just worked really hard and, um, and got there, yeah. you know, by, by just digging in and getting on with it. I think deep down I probably was much more impressed with that. And I think I was a bit intimidated as well by people who... There is a kind of swagger, isn't there, to people who've gone to very good schools, have that... Women and men 
have a real confidence and a real swagger and I've always found that I love it I really admire it but I'm really intimidated by it because really? it's not me I just don't quite get it it's the sort of people that you know if I say I'm sorry there's no tables available tonight look, look here there seems to be a problem my good man yeah it's that I'm going to I'm going to solve this. Let's throw something at this problem. Money, yes. charm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to be able to do that. But I've just never mastered it. Phil actually maybe is the public school thing. I don't know. But Phil is very good in that situation. He kind of, um, he used to teach business English to, to um, people learning English, but, you know, wanting to learn about how to negotiate in a meeting, mm. for example. So he learnt from that all sorts of, he came at it as an English teacher, but he learnt from it all these negotiating tactics, which he will employ really brilliantly. So one of the things he taught me is that when mm -hmm. you're, you know, if you arrive at the, at the restaurant and they say there's no table and you say, well, is there any way that maybe we could sort of push those two tables together or something? Quite often they'll use the word usually and they'll say, no, we don't normally do that. We don't usually do that. And I would not notice that, but Phil will always notice it and say, so forgive me, but under what circumstances would you do it? Yeah. And at that point, because you've been polite about it, but also quite persistent, very often they'll say, okay, under these circumstances, I'll do yeah, it just to shut to you up. You need to solve the problem for yeah. someone, present them with a solution. So after you left, after you graduated, it seems like, and I may be wrong, but it seems like you were moved into radio fairly it was fairly swift was it yeah i got into the oxford review um which was the equivalent of footlights and um look at that rebecca <coughs> what an extraordinary looking dog there's a fight breaking out what is he what Who's, is that i don't know i know Hello, nothing about darling. dogs oh i Beautiful love this though. stuff like david lee roth yeah Hello, darling. dog. what a beautiful dog what kind of breed is this again Oh, it's an Afghan. Well, we should really know that, Emily. We should have known that. Do you know it's the beautiful. most beautiful Afghan? Got the coolest hairdo. And um, what's the Afghan called? Malachi. What's it called? Malachi. 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 That's the coolest Mal name for a dog ever. So yeah, so you, so getting. I mean, I was first aware of you. I can. I remember. It would have been when you were doing the day to day and mm. working with Steve Coogan on with Alan Partridge and only yeah. knowing you and I remember watching you and I was with my mum who was an actor and she said god she's so funny that woman because we were really laughing at you and then we said god she's really naturalistic and a brilliant actor and then you open your mouth to sing and my <laughs> mum went oh great <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's the nicest thing I've ever heard <laughs> because she was like you were the triple oh, threat but oh that's I, nice most people were I was certainly first came across you through your work with, you know, with the day to day and Steve Keegan. Yeah. What sort of led up to that and how did that all happen? Um, that was that was really sort of among the first TV stuff I did. I was incredibly lucky that that all panned out. Um, what had happened was that I, I was in a double act when I left um, Oxford. I was in a, a, an act called The Bobo Girls um, with uh, Sean Ed William, who's now a, a, one of the comedy commissioners at Radio 4 in fact and she she got much more into production as as the years went on and became a brilliant comedy producer um, so Sean Ed and I were in this double act my brother wrote all the sketches and I wrote all the songs and we had this wonderful guy called Yon Magnuson who now exec produces Graham Norton's show actually 
um, and he was our musical director. So it was a very tight-knit little group. And we did, and that's how I got my equity card doing gigs with the Bobo Girls. And then we got a couple of series on radio. Um, just because we were on the circuit a lot, we were doing loads of gigs and we got seen and we were, you know, I think quite unusual because it was half songs, half sketches. So we got a little series on radio and that went quite well. And then in, during that time, I was working at the World Service. I'd managed to get a gig doing English language teaching programmes oh. at the World Service. And that's how I met Phil. Oh, you Phil were doing a there. mostly cloudy today. I was doing things <laughs> like... Um, uh, we, would, we would do crazy things like the lyrics of songs explained for listeners oh, overseas. Brilliant. So we, I remember we did Phil Collins' Groovy Kind of Love on one of them. <laughs> and, um, and there was this uh, actor who was reading out, you know, baby, you and me got a groovy kind of love. And then I would be, have to, at slow speed, say, groovy. What does Phil mean by the word groovy? Simon and then Simon would say well when Phil says groovy what he means is and that was basically what we did and then we did slow speed news and slow speed drama so yeah. I was doing these two things concurrently yeah. I had my moonlighting radio comedy career and I had my world service gig and that's where I, how I met Phil and so on um, and but then we got a second series of the Bobo Girls radio show and our producer, the first series producer, had left to get a telly job. Yeah. So we were then looking around for a producer to, you know, Radio 4 producer who could do it. And my friend Seanad, my double act partner, said, oh, do you remember that guy Armando Iannucci who we met once at a And I literally, I'd met him once, I think, at Oxford. Because people always think we must have been bosom pals. Yeah. And, that's what, but, and I didn't know him at all, really. And she said, oh, do you remember that guy? Because he's now a producer at Radio 4 and he'll obviously seen our work. Why don't we ask him? Yeah. So we asked him. And it was the luckiest thing I could ever have done. He did the second series. And while we were doing it, well, Sean Ed actually at that point got a job herself at Radio 4 and started producing. So, um, so Amanda then said to me, well, like, what are you going to do if, the, if you're not doing the double act? Will you, would you like to come in and do a few sketches for me on the Mary Whitehouse experience with David Deal and, and co? Um, which I did. And then he just kept getting me in. And then I remember couple, about probably six months or eight months after that, he said, I'm developing this new show which is going to be partially improvised. And was that I, the day today? That was on the hour, which became oh, the, the day hour, today. Which became the day today. And I, like an idiot, said, <laughs> I don't improvise, because this was the time when Whose Line Is It Anyway and stuff like that was going on, and, and all these brilliant people were doing improv sort of almost competitively, and I thought, I couldn't do that in a million years. So I said, no. I said, no, I, can I just come in and do some of the reading bits and not do the improv? And he kind of said, well, no, you, but you come in, but, you know, you, you, we will get you to improvise. And I was just thinking I'm going to But do you know what's out. interesting? I just think that says a lot about the difference between men and women in a way, because I would have said what you said. Yeah, I think it's And I true, think actually. women tend to, you so don't want to disappoint or let yeah. down. And I know yes. I'm generalising here, but I think... No, it is a generalisation, but I think you're right. Men's is generally... Fuck it, I'll yeah, learn it. I'll have a go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're so right. And I think we are, I hope that's changing, but I think yeah. we're, it's so ingrained in us to just sort of, to toe the line and to, to not, not show off and not be, not draw attention to yourself. And so even as an actor, I was trying not to draw attention to myself. I was sort of like, oh. can I just do the quiet bits? I have to really school myself not to say yeah. sorry all the time. Do you? For things that I shouldn't be sorry about because I shouldn't have to be sorry. But I, I can't do it. I find it really difficult not to, not well, to you say that. Have really you seen what your dog's done to my jeans? <laughs> I, mean, I said sorry for that I'd as well. I'd be pretty embarrassed if I... I'm very sorry. He, on the other hand, as a male dog, 
<laughs> he doesn't say sorry, does he? No, he just keeps doing it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, working with the day-to-day, -day, mm. what was that working experience like for you? It was, it was incredibly happy and positive. It really was. I have, I've got no negative... I'm sure there must have been times when it was exhausting and I was cross at the end of a day, but I can't remember any of those things. I only remember it being brilliant. I got on with everybody. I just loved the material we were doing. It, and it was it was such a challenge because I didn't feel um, because I didn't feel that I was really quite qualified to do it. But at the same time, I thought, well, I must be doing OK because Armando keeps employing me and he's not a man who would do it out of charity. He's clearly doing it because he thinks I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving whatever I'm doing is what he wants for the show. So gradually my confidence increased and I just felt like each challenge then. I'm sorry, he's done it again, again with the muddy paws. Bailey, get down. Did you start getting recognised around that time then, when you went out, and what, what was that Not like? very much. I mean, a little bit. Um, the first time I remember being recognised, which was actually after a Knowing Me, Knowing You, I think, um, I, it was just, I have this memory of this being really toe-curlingly embarrassing, because I didn't, you know, you can't plan for it, really, no. and, and so you don't really know how you're going to respond. And I remember I was in a, a shop with Phil, and this person came up to me and said, um, I hope you don't mind my saying, but... I saw you on telly last week and, you know, I really loved the show. Um, but he'd started it by saying something like, it, am I right in thinking you're the woman from Knowing Me Knowing You? I think that was the phrase he used. And like, I don't know where this phrase came from because I've never said it before or since, but according to Phil, I went, oh, well done you. And Phil just afterwards just went, okay, don't ever do that. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most patronising thing I've well done you like pat on the head I mean, god knows where that came from i think i was just i was so floored by it you know and it was just like you must be a, a genius to have spotted me without without my wig and my false teeth or whatever i've been do with. you think also as someone and you've said yourself you know if you're someone who feels anxious some of the time it's almost there's almost a panic about not knowing what to, you're confronted with a situation you're unfamiliar with yeah where there's a lot of focus on you yeah and you don't know what to say, and then you, of course, inevitably say the wrong thing. Generally, people are absolutely lovely when they, when they recognise you. It's quite rare for anybody to say anything that's... I mean, I've, I've had the odd one of people saying... <laughs> I remember somebody once saying to me, I saw you in that drama last night. And I said, oh, right. I didn't say, well done you. I just said, oh, right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, we didn't think much of it. <laughs> Things like that. There are a few moments like that when you just think, why would you bother to stop me and tell me? But generally, people are lovely. So as time's gone on, I mean, mm. it doesn't happen all the time by any means. It's still relatively unusual. But generally, I, I'm quite relaxed about it now. I just think, OK, that's, that's nice. That's a nice thing that somebody said. And presumably doing the thick of it, again with Amanda Iannucci, that which you were so brilliant in, and oh, that's you. been such a celebrated performance because that character has become so iconic and... She's Was become that... like a warning, I think. <laughs> I slightly worry she might have put people, more women off going into politics. That's always been my anxiety about it. How did people in politics respond to you? You know, did you feel you were suddenly on their radar at all? Oh, yeah, totally. I had this, this brilliant um, experience, because that, that is really the job that I most often get recognised from, because I look most like me in it. Because um, a lot of the stuff I'd done previously, I was in wigs and false teeth and stuff, but Nicola obviously just looks like me. But I remember I got invited to a charity thing at Downing Street after the first series had gone out. 
And I knew lots of politicians were into the show because I'd been at a screening with lots of politicians and they were all kind of fawning over me. <laughs> but I'd sort of, I hadn't quite realised how much the political establishment, the wider political establishment, loved the show. So I got invited to this thing and I was, it was a charity do, so, you know, I was all up for going, but I was also really nervous about it because, you know, it's intimidating to walk into 10 Downing Street and not know anybody. And I can't remember how, but somehow or other, I twigged on Twitter that Catelyn Moran was going as well, yeah. who I didn't know, but we were in touch on Twitter. So I sent her a direct message saying, can we meet up before? Because I'm really nervous about going to this thing. And she said, yes, I'm terrified as well. So we, went, we met up in a pub just near Downing Street, which is, of course, frequented by political, by spads and yeah. you know, all these political obsessives. They were all having a drink after work. And I walked in, and literally it was like that moment in the West Westerns when somebody pushes open the saloon doors and the piano stops playing. Yeah. They all just stopped talking and stared at me. And it was really... I mean, that doesn't happen. That's not the level that I'm at at all. But it was most peculiar feeling. <laughs> and do you know what's slightly intoxicating, if I'm honest? Oh. A little bit, a little bit heady. It was quite <laughs> nice. It was quite nice. I think there's a sort of feeling that it's immodest to say, I like being recognised. But actually, sometimes it is really nice. Um, my husband used to say whenever we went to, when, um, when the thick of it was, was going out, you know, that was kind of a, at the point when, when lots and lots of people would, would watch that show and it did have a kind of real cachet about it. Yeah. And we would go to open, uh, parents' evenings at my kids' school. And we knew that, you know, because the kids would say to us, the politics teacher loves it or the history teacher loves it. Oh, what was that? Oh, I just saw another cockapoo and I thought, but no, Bailey wouldn't no, get involved no, in that. doesn't do that. He steers well clear. Someone, want, a journalist said about you not long ago, um, don't do an intake of breath because it's a nice thing. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> I could, know, I was could a you sense my stomach tensed up for a moment? <laughs> as a performer, that, that's sometimes a tricky thing to hear. <laughs> but a journalist said, Rebecca Front is one of those performers that you see her name on the credits and you relax and you think oh this is going to be oh, good. Oh that's nice, that's a very and nice thing to say. I really think that's very true of you. In the sort of um, biography channel, mm. Rebecca Front, you know when they make one of those movies yeah. of your life, what are the things that you that's feel really set up there <laughs> as things that you feel, I'm so glad um, I did that, or I'm I doing think that. I mean, I've been so lucky because actually there are quite a lot that I'm really, really proud of. But I think definitely Thick of It is one of the things I'm most proud of because it was the most fulfilling job and, and I loved every second of it. Um, so I think I would definitely, I want to be thought of as an actor. Mm. I'm not, I I, I, I'm really proud of having written a couple of books, but I, I find writing incredibly hard work and I have so much admiration for people who do it because... I just, I'm not temperamentally suited to it, really. It's just all the pressure is on you. I think, actually, I'm quite a team player and I like to be around people and I like the collaboration. Yeah. I don't quite trust myself to be able to come up with the goods when it's just me. Do you consider yourself an extrovert? In no, the not at all. Are you not? No, no, no. Very shy. I think most actors are, actually. Um, I think I've rarely met an actor who, even the most outgoing ones, who genuinely thinks that they're an extrovert. I think we all just put on a, a good show. My mum wants to describe me as a dreadful show-off. Yeah. Would you have been described in that way? Pro probably. Um, yeah, I think I, I was always, you know, the first one in auditions at school for school shows and I was always the one trying to make people laugh in class and who could do impressions of the teachers and all of that stuff. 
but as you know it's, it's like the oldest story in the book isn't it but that really is what you do when you feel insecure and you feel like you're um you're not really that good at anything you think well at least i can make people laugh often people say about performers that you know what's the hole there's always a hole they're trying to fill in somewhere and right. I, I don't really see that with you there doesn't seem to be one i think probably there is this ambitious thing there is it's never quite enough for yeah. me so there's, there's maybe that's the hole i'm trying to fill is i'm always thinking yeah but i could i could have done this i could have achieved that yeah and i don't quite know where that comes from actually but that's that is quite a big part of me and that that was there at school as well yeah but i could have got an a I, you know i got a b plus but i could have got an a so and then you get the a and then it's yeah but i could have got an a plus so i think i'm that's probably the hole i'm trying to fill but but why i don't really know do you think also if you did always you were always conscious that you had sort of anxiety and you know the performing is a form of self it's a, it's a kind of a cure in a way it's almost like right I'm going to be driven to that yeah because that's going to force me to focus on that yes that's my that's my next goal um yeah I think there's a big part of if you are an anxious person then your whole life is a performance in that you're constantly having to tell people you know, nothing to see here. I'm absolutely fine. Yeah. I'm in control of everything. Yeah. And maybe that's a part of it as well. Just that thing of, you know, constantly having to tell the world, it's all cool. It's all fine. Look, I can do this. I can do that. I can skate on this thin ice over here. I'm absolutely in control of my world when actually you feel like the world is totally out of control. Bailey, come on, pups. Do you find that dog walks are good for you mentally? Oh, yes, undoubtedly. Yeah, I mean, he really, really, he, he gets me out in the, in the sunlight, even if it's very milky sunlight like now. I'm outdoors getting fresh air and some vitamin D and breathing and looking at trees and, you know, and that's all down to him. Yeah. Every single day, sometimes twice a day, and that's just made all the difference to me. And now, having gone from not growing up in a dog family, mm. not only are you a dog family, the matriarch of a dog family, <laughs> but you do the voiceover. I know. <laughs> the super vet. Super vet. The glorious, blessed Noel Fitzpatrick. I yes. Ray have a Who run you've there. met and I haven't, and I'm so jealous that you met him. Oh, do you know, Rebecca, he gets a lot of interest, shall we say. I'm not surprised. He's got very twinkly eyes and an incredibly lovely accent. And he's, you know, he's good with animals. What can you say? Um, yeah, I, I was so frustrated actually a couple of years ago, you know, when he did his live tour, mm. he did that big thing at the O2 and the production company who makes Supervet invited me along. Yes. And I was so excited to go and then I was filming and I couldn't go and that was my one chance to meet Noel. So I yeah, still haven't met him. That's the date. We're going to go together. Let's do it. When we first got Bailey, because I'd already done sort of six series or something of Supervet at that point, when we first got Bailey and, and we signed up with our local vet, and, and my kids were try, trying so hard. They were like sort of, you know, bribing me to go in. And when the vet says, so what seems to be wrong with Bailey? To go, one-year-old Bailey is suffering. Because <laughs> they're obsessed with my voiceover voice. They're always trying to get me to do things in my voiceover voice. And I was so tempted. And I thought, no, I can't do it. Because they'll just look at me. They, won't, they probably don't watch the show. Because would you, if you worked in a vet, you're not going to go home and watch Supervet, are you? So I didn't do it, but I slightly regret it to this day. Are you tempted to do your voiceover voice when you're having an argument with Phil? <laughs> <laughs> Phil, 
Phil thinks he's always right. Rebecca has other ideas. End of part. <laughs> Ident. Credits roll. Yeah, that, would, that might be the end of a happy marriage if I started doing that, I think. It's interesting though, isn't it, that, as I say, I remember looking at you when I was, saw you on, you were doing the day-to-day -day and you were doing, you know, um, must have been that first series, mm. wasn't it? With, yeah. Um, Steve Coogan. And I, I remember when I looked at you and I thought, God, that woman's so beautiful and kind of self-possessed. Oh, But you. she's funny. No, that's, honestly, that's very sweet because I think I honestly had this idea that to be funny, you sort of had to be a certain way. It was, do you know yeah, what I mean? It was a bit Joan yeah. Sims or you're not coming around my house. You no, know. absolutely. That's what I kind of grew up with. You couldn't so be I was, young and beautiful and be funny. I think I grew up thinking exactly that. And I absolutely didn't set out to do comedy because I think there was a part of me that just thought, well, that's not very like elegant, you know, <laughs> ladylike. I don't want to do that thing. And then I drifted into it because... Uh, just actually because I was auditioning for stuff at Oxford and I wasn't getting the part of Ophelia or Perdita, you know, and then people were just like, oh, you're quite funny, you could be the kooky maid. <laughs> so. I remember a man once saying to me, men don't like loud girls. <gasps> oh, you were well out of that one. Because <laughs> all the best men love loud girls. Do you think <laughs> loud, so? mouthy, funny girls. Yeah, of course they do. I mean, men, well, surely you would want to be with someone who's going to make you laugh, wouldn't you? Someone who's going to just, you know, keep the conversation flowing. Maybe not. Actually, maybe, shall I ask Phil? Shall I text him and say, Tony, what is it that's, that attracted you? Was it that I was mouthy and funny? Or was it actually that I just liked your cooking? What was you seem such a sunny-natured, lovely person, Rebecca. Oh, Phil would find that very amusing. <laughs> no, I'm quite... Um, I've got what? better as I've got older, actually. I'm not particularly I don't get particularly angry I do get quite moody I get I get sulky about things and when things aren't going my way I get cross what and resentful what do you sulk about oh it'll be you know that that I think my biggest problem actually is that I I'm very I'm t really passive aggressive so I don't say outright you know like somebody will Phil, Phil will say for example we've been invited to so-and-so's for lunch and I'll think oh, I really don't want to do that because I've got lines to learn on Sunday and I'm yeah. working you know I'm being picked up at 5 a.m. tomorrow I just don't want to go but I won't say that so consequently the lunch plans go ahead and then in the run-up to it I'm just kind of quiet and sullen and Phil's going what's what's wrong and I eventually in the car on the way there will say well I didn't want to go obviously and he'll say no not obviously no you didn't tell me if you told me I would have said she's working tomorrow so it's that, that's my, that's the sort yeah. of thing where I just get moody and sulky, whereas actually it would be so much easier if I just said, could we not do that? Because it's <laughs> not really, that's not a great day for me to do it. I'm the kind of person that goes, I'm a bit sunshine and showers, you know, I'm either like really happy, but then I do cry quite a lot. Yes. Do you cry? I do. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and particularly as I've got older, I find it easier to cry. Very useful as an actor, obviously, very valuable. Um, but I do, no, I cry a lot, it really sometimes will just completely take me unawares. There was a very strange thing actually recently, because I'm Jewish, I'm you know, from a Jewish family, and I, I'm not very observant by any means. And mm. I, like most Jews, I go to synagogue once a year for Yom Kippur, which is mm -hmm. the big fast day. Nobody enjoys it, no one enjoys it. You sit in synagogue for nine hours and everybody's starving, so everybody's breath <laughs> smells and it's just, it's really not fun. No, even the rabbis will tell you it's not fun. 
But I kind of love it because I'm with my family and my parents have always done it. So my brother and I yeah. go and we sit with my parents and it's, that's a wonderful thing. Anyway, this year we couldn't go because of the pandemic. So the synagogue organised a Zoom Yom Kippur and my dad sent oh. us a link. And so we all sat in our separate houses and we watched this Zoom <laughs> thing and we kind of messaged each other saying, you know, oh, I love this hymn or, oh, this is the bit where, you know, we usually get the giggles or those kind of things. And I... And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, this is great, actually, because I don't have to go and sit there all day yeah. in uncomfortable chairs yeah. and stand up for hours, which you normally do. So it seemed to me like this was going to be the, the best Yom Kippur ever because <laughs> it was stress-free. Actually, it suddenly really got to me midway through the day that, that actually Yom Kippur is not about sitting in uncomfortable chairs and not yeah. eating. It's about being with my family. Oh. And I suddenly wasn't with my family. And it's, it got to me in a way that yeah. the whole lockdown hadn't got to me. I'd been really, really gung-ho all the way through lockdown, getting up every day, doing my yoga, being very upbeat and on the phone to my parents and taking shopping around and being very, you know, very happy, happy, happy. And suddenly Yom Kippur on Zoom, sitting on my own in the spare room, watching it on a computer and texting my family. That's what got me. And I cried more that day than I've cried throughout the whole of this horrible year. It just suddenly, it's making me cry now, suddenly got to me. I just thought, this isn't what life is. It's yeah. just, it's horrendous. But to me, that's a good reason to cry because what you're doing is you're letting that out. And I suppose I feel, going back to looking at when you were a kid and that incident happened with your dad, I do wonder if, and it wouldn't have been anyone's fault, but there just wasn't, enough awareness about how to deal with trauma which that was then maybe yeah. just by school you know just by sort of people in general where mm. even therapists and things they that all should have come out and you should have processed oh, it and I'm just wondering if maybe you, d you didn't get an opportunity to process no it. that's a that's a really shrewd point because I stopped going to school around that time I did end up having to go to therapy in order to transfer to a new school, the, that was the, the uh, local authority insisted that I had to go and see an educational psychologist for, I think it was three sessions, and they would then say, yes, all right, you're okay to transfer to a new school or whatever. And I remember these sessions being an absolute waste of time because they'd ask me these stupid questions like, <laughs> you know, a frying pan is on fire and your mother is on the telephone, what will you do? And I was thinking, well, what do you think I would do? I'd, I'd go and tell my mum, I'd say, get off the phone, mum, there's a fight, you know, I'm not an idiot. So there was all that going on. But the last session, I remember they said, now, is there, like, is there anything we've missed? Is there any, we've got five minutes left, Rebecca, anything you'd like to tell us? And I said, yeah, I thought I might mention that my dad nearly drowned. And they didn't know, they hadn't asked me about it because they didn't know. And it was that thing of, yeah. you're a psychologist, did you, surely yeah. that, the first question should have been, has anything happened recently? that <laughs> might have upset you a bit, you know. So, yeah, I think, I think things have changed. Was, I hope times have changed and that people are much more aware of childhood anxiety now. So, I know you've been working with Armando Unici again recently, haven't you? I have, yes. On this brilliant series, which is, it's HBO, isn't it? I watch yes. it on, on Sky here. But it's, um, it's called Avenue 5. Yeah. And um, it's one, I just, um, it's one of my favourite jobs to do. I mean, it's my first American job for a start. Yeah. My first American TV thing. Um, and yeah, it's set on a, on a space cruise. So it's, I think it's meant to be 30 years in the future. And it's, but it's suspiciously like a 1980s cruise ship. It's incredibly glamorous and lush and everything's gold and white and sleek and marbled and beautiful. The most wonderful design. Um, 
and something goes catastrophically wrong in episode one and <laughs> suddenly they're trapped. But what's, as with everything that Armando does, there's a weird prescience about it. I mean, I have to say, when yeah. I first heard about it, I thought that's a hilarious idea, but I also thought it doesn't really sound like satire in the sense it's not like Veep or it's not thick of it, you know, yeah. it's not obviously satirising. But he's so, he and the writing team are so clever because they tap into the zeitgeist and, and everything he does ends up being really prescient. So there was an episode of Avenue 5 that went out where, you know, they really are approaching catastrophe and they're all about to die. And there are warning signs around the ship which basically say, you know, hands, face, space. Um, these red and yellow warning signs, exactly like the ones... That, were, uh, that Boris was standing behind when he was giving his, all his warnings. And this, was, this had been filmed eight months before or something. It was the most uncanny thing. And it's like Armando just has this sense of this is the way things could be going. And then he this... puts it into a comedy and it's hilarious, but also really terrifying. And the other one, which I also really recommend people to check out, because that's... Yeah, it's a lovely show. ...was on the BBC earlier this year, wasn't it? Yeah, it went out during, during lockdown, and I think as a result of that, got um, a lot more attention than I, think, than I expected it to. Yeah. I thought it deserved a lot of attention because it was a really good show, but I just I expected it to just kind of be, you know, to, to yeah. get a little bit of notice. But as it happened, I think it really appealed to people. And it's a lovely show. It's Holly Walsh and Pippa Brown have written it and it's yeah. a, so it's a female writing team predominantly female cast all about um, a, basically a bigamous relationship and it's just just I think it's beautiful it's really nicely written and yeah. I play yeah. a very sort of passive aggressive slightly more aggressive than passive this time <laughs> passive aggressive you character you don't to often play quite passive aggressive my mum said to me recently that in recent years I've played I mean Karen in Avenue 5 is an exception to this but I have played quite a lot of really not very nice women <laughs> most notably I, I was in a few episodes of Poldark and she was a monster she was an absolute monster that one and my mum said to me what is it with you because I'm I'm really sort of smiley and amenable and I kind of just put up with any nonsense from anybody I'm so not a sort of you know aggressive horrible <laughs> person and I'm always being cast like that so I don't know if maybe there's uh, I mean it's fun don't get me wrong they're fun <laughs> parts to play but I don't know if maybe is that something to do with the way society looks at older women, maybe? That they think you're either going to be a victim or you're going to be a bully? I don't know. But it's interesting that I have gravitated towards those well, parts. Well, it's interesting in um, the book, Rebecca, um, I think those contain the two tropes of women, essentially. Yes, I've always felt so that true. with that book, that it's the, the young, vulnerable um, girl mm. um, and... Mrs. Dan that, the, and that the is essentially what it becomes. It's like, you're going to be yeah. Mrs. Danvers, mm. which one are you going to be? Or the, yeah. the beautiful, vulnerable narrator. And um, do you know what? I'm good with Mrs. Danvers. Oh, yeah. So much more fun. <laughs> so much more fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully anticipate, as I get, my hope is that if I'm lucky enough to get properly old, that I can become more and more outspoken and terrifying. <laughs> I want to be a sort of, you know, dowager, dowager duchess of <laughs> terrifyingness. Once I started having to wear reading glasses, I, I, because I'm, I'm quite long-sighted, so I, I need glasses to look at a text, but in rehearsals I always have to have them perched on my yeah. nose so I can look at the other actors. Yeah. And I became aware that I was suddenly this rather terrifying woman <laughs> who looked over her glasses at young men. <laughs> I thought, 
I'm good with that, actually. Yeah, I'm all right with that. I've gone through the phase where I feel I have to be nice and lovely to people. I'm now just going to terrify you into submission. That's, I love you saying if I'm be. lucky enough to get old. That's such a lovely way of looking at life. And I see it like that, you know, because I think so often we attach a sort of, you know, this idea of it's all downhill or misery to being old. And I, to me, I honestly mean this. I, I genuinely feel it's such a privilege to, to get old. And I hear about your parents and I think that's so amazing that they're still here. Mm. Um, and I'm sorry you're not getting to spend so much time with them because that must be tricky with lockdown, but how lovely. I read that you'd been in, they've been in the same house for is it 50 years or something. They were. I mean, they've, now, they've moved now. 54 years. Thank goodness something. they have. Yeah. They're now closer to where we are. But, um, yeah, they were in the same house for, I think it was, yeah, about 52 years. And oh, it was, that, yeah, that was, a, that was quite a thing moving out of it. It was, re- it was no, the right time. biggest they orders. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're not, they're not great at throwing stuff away. But there was a real continuity to that house, and and I think when they moved, I think there was a there was a slight anxiety from all of us that maybe it was the house that we, you know, we're such a close family. Maybe it was the house somehow that had that magic that held mm. us all together. And of course, it's not. It was mm. it's the people. So they moved, and nothing changed at all. It's yeah. just you know they they they've got a bit less space, but it's all much more manageable. I should let you go now because I thought I could talk to this woman for well, ages. Well, I've been having such a lovely time. You, Thank I, you for putting up with me. Would that be your a laundry off? bill for your, <laughs> for your jeans? I'm would so that be sorry. Your off? Thank you for putting up with me. I think it would be mine. <laughs> no, I think it would. Thank you for putting up with me. I'd just like to thank you all. I could record that in my voiceover <laughs> voice for my funeral, couldn't I? <laughs> I'd just like to thank you all for putting up with me. Please don't tune in for part two because I won't be there. <laughs> what do you, um, I always ask people, what do you most fear people say about you when you leave a room? And what do you most hope they'll say about you? So what do you worry they'll say first? Oh, that's interesting. I worry that they'll think I'm a downer, I think. And I think that's why I kind of put on a big show of being very upbeat a lot of the time because I worry they're just going to go, oh God, she's dragged us all down, hasn't she? That's like the worst thing I could imagine. <laughs> and what do you hope on your good, you know, what do you hope that they would say? I hope they'll say um, that I made them laugh, actually. I think that's kind of like my greatest achievement, I feel. If I, if I feel like I've genuinely cheered people up and really made them laugh, I feel like I've had a good day. You've really cheered me up. I feel, oh, my, I sp- so. I feel my spirits are lifted from spending a couple of hours with you. I, I appreciate it's not possible for you to see everyone who listens to this podcast, but I really recommend a walk with Rebecca and Bailey. <laughs> as I'm, a I'm here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Alternative to um, medication. <laughs> I mean, do keep taking your medication. Yes, obviously, we don't want to encourage anybody <laughs> oh, not to do that. <laughs> but a nice walk and come and meet Bailey. And yeah, I'll yeah. be here. And Ray is so Ray fond of you. Ray is just is glued to I my side now. I need to take now. you back to your cupboard. Before, I want to ask you one more thing. As we were on the walk back, I'm going to take advantage of the last minute. Rebecca Front, you lie to shop assistants, don't you? Because <laughs> I do as well. Well, like the sort of the over-politeness thing. <laughs> Out of over-politeness. So, for example, I once went into the chemist, just down the road from here, actually, in South End Green, mm. because I'd caught... I don't have kids myself, but I'd caught knits from my godchildren. Right. And I had to buy knit shampoo, but I was ashamed that I was buying it for myself. (laughs) So the man's, the chemist said, how many children? 
And I couldn't say, no, it's me. And at the time I was like, I'm a 35 year old childless yeah. woman with knits. And I said, <laughs> two. <laughs> you invented children. That's absolutely brilliant. But I'm only telling this as a precursor to what happened to you. <laughs> yes, it was one of my madder moments. I was buying um, uh, loads and loads of white chocolate buttons for a recipe. This is such a middle class story. There's a, there's a brilliant <laughs> Ivy cookbook recipe which, where you make chocolate yes. sauce out of white chocolate buttons. And I thought, even I can't screw that up. So I went to... Um, Iceland <laughs> to buy loads of white chocolate buttons. There was like a bulk pack. And then I just got embarrassed about the fact that I was buying so many white chocolate buttons. So I said, completely, she hadn't even asked me. I said to the woman behind the counter, it's, it's for a kid's party. Um, and she sort of looked at me like, like I care, you know. <laughs> and I said, it's, it's her birthday. And again, she sort of, you know, really wasn't interested. And then I realised that the woman behind me had a daughter in my kids class yeah and I thought well they're gonna, she's gonna know that it was it's not my kids birthday because this is September or whatever and my kids is <laughs> not September but it seemed at the time it yeah. seemed quite logical to me because I thought well otherwise I'll be judged for, <laughs> for buying too many chocolate buttons I always worry about that well the people are judging you on your shopping yeah yeah but do you judge people on their shopping yeah. be honest yeah that's why we worry about it because you know that if you're looking at people's trolleys and thinking Oh, that's a lot of Fanta for one person. Then, of course, of course, they're going to be doing it to you. My kids actually called me out on it. Um, you know, once they, as they get older, kids are very good at, at picking up on all your foibles. Yes. And they sussed out quite quickly that I was incapable of buying a job lot of anything unhealthy without saying to the person behind the counter, it's not all for me, in a jokey voice. I do it all the time. Yes, and, it's, and I never do, do it with apples or plums that. or anything, but it's not all for me. <laughs> like, they don't care. They don't care. They're just looking at their watch thinking, is it nearly my break time? Nobody is interested in and how it, much chocolate I'm buying. It makes it worse when you go, not all for me, and yeah. they go... Yeah. 4.99 yeah, exactly and they always do because they're not interested that's the other thing actually is it's is that there's an undercurrent with all of that that people are interested people aren't you know really people don't care what you're buying they just they've got a job to do we've just got to stop saying sorry all the time haven't we if we just said sorry a bit less then our lives would be so much easier that's your homework for this week Emily. <laughs> say sorry a bit less and i promise i will too I sorry, no, I won't actually. <laughs> sorry, I'll be. I love. Well, I'm not sorry. I was here today because, honestly, Rebecca, nice it's segue. Been one of my favourite walks. I've loved it. <laughs> I've loved Bailey. Even that he's covered me in mud. I and know. I, call this, I'm, I am sorry about that actually. I call these happy stains. No, scratch that. It sounds really <laughs> dodgy. <laughs> I've so enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much for having me. I've really loved it. Bye-bye, gorgeous Bye. Ray. Are you sure? I've got really big pockets. Are you quite sure I can't put Ray in one of my pockets and just take him home? I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.